Hello and welcome to the Fram Jacket podcast. I am Nick Hussey. I am the Git Who Speaks and I founded Fram Jacket and I designed very nice jackets you can look at on framjacket.com. Right, that's the plug over with. Each week we talk to interesting, kind people about the ways that they've explored life. That could be positive or negative. Part of this is about mental health. Uh, We support Mind Mental Health Charity. Um, And that's just about talking. And sometimes that's just having a laugh. And sometimes that's some pretty heavy stuff. Um, This week, um, it's very much about politics. Um, And I think in a really interesting and almost optimistic way. Um, Peter Walker is a political correspondent at The Guardian. He's also their cycling correspondent. Um, He's a very nice man, and he's a very, very fair, even-minded man. And it really comes across in the podcast. And it really made me feel a lot better about politicians and politics, um, and about humans, really. So see what you think. I think it's a really fascinating chat, and not really what I expected. Um, Enjoy. Um, I'm sat here with Peter Walker of The Guardian, who is a political writer. He's also a cyclist and does some cycle writing. Um, I am Nick Hussey, the founder of uh, Fram Jacket, and um, we're going to have a chat. Hello, Peter. Hello. We are going to have a chat. Um, I always ask at the beginning, and I never prepare anyone. I've decided to do this as a tradition, but um, what are you having and how are you doing? What am I having? What I'm having here now is a slightly poncy London lunch of pasta and sun-dried tomato. How am I doing? I'm doing all right. That would have been poncy 20 years ago, but not anymore. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> um, I'm doing, in general, pretty well. I mean, you know, life is busy, but things are good. I'm healthy, my loved ones are healthy. You can't really ask for much more than that. Yeah, that sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, and we, I always sort of say how we know each other or don't know each other. Um, we, we, we're, we're not friends, but we've spoken in the past because I used to run a cycling company. Mm-hmm. Um, and you once published a blog that I did, The Guardian, which is great. Um, and we just sort of, in the cycling miasma, we just sort of connected that way. But I'm very interested in talking to you for lots of reasons. Um, and particularly because you are working in the House of Parliament at a time when everything seems to be going a bit nuts. And I've also yes. noticed that you, you have quite a good social media presence. You don't, you're not aggressive, but you don't tend to hold back. And you do have opinions about what you think about what MPs or parties are doing, um, which um, I'm interested in because sometimes people sit on the fence so that they don't bother anyone. Um, so how do you... So there's lots in that. How Tell me about what you see as the political situation at the moment. I don't, I don't mean tie it all, all up with a ribbon. It's, let me put that in a better way. It's, when I was growing up in the 80s, politics was very interesting. It was full of personalities. And you generally knew, knew where you stood. And people would say things that were often controversial. People would often resign. Somebody would jag something else. Now it seems so metered, but also so incredibly rubbish that we seem to have lost engagement with politics. Um, and I think that's incredibly dangerous for democracy, uh, as we may be able to see. Do, do you see that, or do you see it as a vibrant place? How do you see politics and it's the culture of politics at the moment? Politics is probably more controlled than it's been. And one of the aspects of that is that MPs and other politicians are more directly accountable in ways which are both good and bad. So if they say something stupid, then people don't hear about it in the next day's paper or in the evening paper, they hear it immediately through social media. And people can directly communicate with their MP through social media or Facebook or anything like that 
which is often positive. Lots of case stuff gets brought up that way, but can be very, very negative. And politics at the moment is in a really, really, really funny place, particularly funny, now. Funny good or funny... Funny unusual. Mm. Um, and it's all connected to Brexit, which is something that is dominating politics, has done for two years, will do for the next few years. And, I mean, it's kind of like the Dreyfus affair in, you know, France in the 19th uh, century. You have to be on one side of the fence. That's how people are defined. An MP is a Remainer or a Brexiter. And it kind of covers everything. And it's going to be a big change, but no one still, only five months away, no one knows quite how it's going to affect things or what it's going to do. But it's, it's tricky because, you know, one of the things you learn about working in Parliament is a really high percentage of MPs are very decent and extraordinarily hard-working people. The hours they put in are completely ridiculous. There's a lot of focus on when the House of Commons chamber is not very full, but that's only a tiny percentage of what they do. Uh, so, you know, politics has got a lot of good people in, but it's in a quite a dangerous place, you could say, because no one really knows where it's going to go. So there's loads of stuff we could pick apart there. Something I'm very interested in is... So I've always been quite political, and by political I mean passionate about the things that matter, which is what, how I used to define politics. Politics, I think, now is defined as um, bureaucracy and avoiding um, being caught out. I think that's how the public might perceive that. So from my point of view, people have said to me in the past, oh, Nick, you, you should go into politics, you'd be a fantastic MP, and I'd go, absolutely no way. First of all, why would I expose myself to that abuse? And secondly... Why would I work within a party that will tell me how to speak and what my opinions are? Because that's what I think is going on in politics now, and I think why people are losing faith in it, if that's correct, is because nobody believes anything anyone says anymore. Because even the decent people, if they go on Newsnight or whatever, if they even get on there, because they, maybe they're not strongly opposed to something enough, they, they get told by, I don't know, it's the PR company or the whip or whatever, you must say the party line. You must stick to the party line. You can't push beyond that. Is that true? To an extent, that's always been there in the modern era. But you could argue it's perhaps not as bad currently as it used to be. So, for example, under the Blair years in particular, it was very controlled. And the communication, you know, this was before my time of working in, you know, being a journalist. But that kind of stuff was much, much more controlled then. And there's an argument that now, individual MP, you have to separate between what ministers say and what the individual MPs say. And yes, if you sign up to the Cabinet then you sign up to collective cabinet responsibility, which means you defend what the government yeah, It's like a board of directors. You've yeah. got to get behind it or you should resign. And that's always been the way. But individual MPs have always had a lot of scope to, if they have no desire for ministerial office, to be very critical. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn spent 30 years in Parliament disagreeing with virtually everything Labour did. And he's now got a reasonable number of his own backbench MPs who do the same thing to him, which he can't really complain about. And... There's an argument for saying that if someone goes into politics, you perhaps have more power as a campaigning backbench MP than you do as particularly a junior minister or even a cabinet minister. So, for example, on the Conservative benches, you have people like Sarah Wollaston, who's the chair of the Health Select Com Committee, who campaigns tirelessly on all sorts of things connected to physical health and mental health, and she's completely brilliant. She gets a lot done. And cabinet ministers are kind of very slightly scared of what her opinions are. So she has an influence that way. And there's quite a few people like that as, as well. She, she's conservative. She's a conservative. So what I find really interesting as well, so, so I see the world as polarised. As, as a Guardian journalist, I think you're expected to not say nice things about conservative MPs. Have you ever had that? Yes, and, you know, this... The other layer you put on top of this is that social media has made some people 
more polarised, or at the very least it's given a voice to the people who are more extreme and thus more polarised. And yes, there is this sense, you know, which is shared by a small number of Labour people too, that you should never be friends with the Tory, you should never say nice things about Tory. Whereas, you know, the counter-argument is judge people on what they individually do. Course. And, you know, as a guardian writer or reader, you might be expected to say, well, overall, I disagree on balance with what so-and-so's party that Conservatives do. However, you can separate it out and individually they do lots of good things. But you have this paradox too that now, since the 2017 election, with a hung pump, this gives MPs arguably more power than they've had in years. And that's why Brexit is in the balance now, because Theresa May cannot push through this particular thing she may or may not want to do, firstly through a cabinet and then through parliament. And so it makes politics more precarious, it makes more interesting. Are you enjoying this period? I think like lots of people in Britain, I'm slightly scared because we don't know where it's going to end. Yeah. And there are... On the inside, is that potentially a scare? Is it scarier looking under the hood? I think it's probably scary for people involved in it. Right. Um, the thing that worries me more is the potential for very extreme views to be generated by this kind of polarised atmosphere. We've seen this in America. In Britain, you've got UKIP, the UK Independence Party, who, I mean, people say they were always an extreme party. That's not the case. They were a quite right of centre mainstream party. And even now, they're the fourth most popular party in the UK by polling. They poll between 5 and 8% in the polls. Mm. But they're on the verge of becoming a far-right party. They're openly anti-Islam. This is under their new leader, Gerard Batten. And this is quite a scary thing. You have a mainstream party which has decided it's OK to adopt this extreme populism which we've seen in Europe and we've seen in America. Um, you know, so that's quite a frightening thing. I think this is part of how marketing and PR is changing the face of the world. And marketing PR includes things like Twitter. It's about how we absorb information. It's about how we absorb sound bites, uh, emotions. Uh, I'm very interested in that. I'm a sort of, I suppose if I have an ability, it's particularly in sort of brand and marketing. And everything's a brand. You're a brand, I'm a brand. The Conservative Party's a brand, etc., etc. And 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 what they've seemed to work out is the old advertising rule, which is some, hit someone in the face with something very simple. Like people that, I will save you money, etc., etc. And you just surround it in a big orange logo or red or whatever and you stick it to someone's face and you keep repeating it and and that was the how Hitler came to power and we can go to extremes like that but people tend to think simplistically even intelligent educated people tend to think simplistically and I think that the news cycle and social media is intensifying the simplification and what I find enormously disappointing because I love I'm fascinated by the complexity of the world and the way we think and about how we can all intermingle with different views and get on with each other, or used to, <laughs> I still think we can, but, but I think it's this, essentially, I think people in power, and I think the marketing PR people in, in politics, and this used to happen in the US and now it's come to the UK, have worked out that you just keep pumping out this very easy to grab, simplistic message, and people will hang on to it. One of them is, immigration is bad. If you throw that out there as UKIP, or even the Tories, and certainly in the US, people will go, yes, that's the reason for our problems. Of course, that's incredibly dangerous. And it has unexpected consequences. George Osborne was interviewed on Newsnight a couple of months back, and, you know, the one regret that he would admit to was the way that the Conservative Party used to routinely demonise not just the EU, but immigration concerns connected to it. And he was basically saying it meant that when it came to the EU referendum, they desperately wanted the voters to back staying in. 
it was very hard for them to row back because there's been many, many years of this message which had become quite mainstream. Mm. I mean, I don't necessarily think this is a new thing. I think there's cycles and there's all sorts of kind of conflicting, competing cycles. So some things get worse and other things get much better. One thing that really struck me was about a week or so ago, um, I went to the political awards hosted by Pink News, the LGBT newspaper. And one of the people giving a the speech there was Home Secretary Sajid Javid. So this is awards for parties or political people who well, are helping the, LGB issues? Or? It's this awards ceremony that they do every year, which is kind of a big networking uh, event. And they tend okay. to have like things like MP of the Year, Campaign of the Year, and things like that. But, but connected to LGBT yes, issues? Yes, okay. yes, purely connected to, 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 to that. And it's the sort of thing which, you know, when I was growing up, no Conservative Party member went to be seen anywhere near. You know, that was the year of Section 28. Yeah. But we had Sajid Javid being one of the first speakers and giving this speech on LGBT rights, which would be indistinguishable from a campaigner, or from Labour, or from Lib Dems, or even from the Greens. And it occurred to me then how much things have changed in a relatively short time. And that is what can kind of happen. And an Asian Tory in a very senior... Well, an Asian Tory is from a Muslim background who's not particularly religious. You know, there's all these things kind of mixing in. And again, you know, even now, some surveys say that a certain percentage of Conservative members would be loath to vote for Javid as leader because they don't want someone from the Muslim background. Mm. But, you know, that's you know, maybe 20-30% of them. And even 10 years ago, that would have been potentially 60%. Mm. So, I think that's the thing that, you know, things change quickly and it can be good and it can be bad. Mm. Which sounds a bit, you know, tries. No, I... And I... Something I've noticed in US politics is you, for every reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So, so with Clinton, we've got Bush. Bush, we got Barman, which from my point of view is absolutely incredible um, as a sort of centre lefty or as I call them, relatively nice people, <laughs> which means exactly. that anyone right, right of centre is going to hate me not now, nice, but, yes. yeah, joking. But, um, uh, and then from Obama, because that really pissed off a lot of people in the US, we got Trump, which was, it's almost like the sign curve is getting deeper and wider, you know, these, these extreme reactions. And then, of course, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s, so I've, I've sort of been very aware of politics, pretty much since the Falklands War, I guess. Yeah. I was always really into it at quite a young age, because my dad was very political. And, yeah, I do see this vibrancy has changed. And what I definitely, definitely see is the trust has changed. You know, you talk to people about politics, people roll their eyes. And people don't want to talk about politics. They don't want to talk about politics because I think it angers them, it scares them, frustrates them. And what I also see is that people don't see a party that represents them, which I think, again, I always think about the danger to democracy. So what's interesting at the moment is I forgot to wear a poppy today. Now, being a lefty, some people would not expect me to wear a poppy, but I actually did some collecting for the Royal British Legion last year because it's something I'm very, very passionate yeah. about. My grandfather fought in the war and a number of members of my family died in the war and I've always been brought up and always felt that democracy is an incredibly precious, fragile, important thing that literally millions of people die for. Of course, yeah. You know, and, and that, that is not an exaggeration. And, and that has, is being or has been lost. Is I think the vote is sacred. I get really angry if people don't vote. Yes. Yeah, I, I think mean, it's yeah. disgusting if people don't vote. And a lot of people don't get that, and I have to understand that. And I think it's probably because they don't, maybe they don't have the context behind why voting is so important. Maybe they just lost faith, which I do understand. I've lost faith. 
I don't know who to vote for. I've been voting Green simply because I want to push a Green agenda because I don't believe in the other parties. But I'm just wondering how we... For me, I, I, kept, I wanted to write this blog, and it's basically about bringing politics back. And basically it means that the PR and the marketing people have got to fall by the wayside, and you've got to let real people be real people, which means they're going to get, unfortunately, loads of shit on the internet. I mean, trust in politics is a strange thing, because the, the polls all show that if you say to someone, do you trust the government, do you trust politicians in general, they all go, oh, no, no, no. But if they say, they name their individual MP and say, do you trust them, then general people go, oh, yes, and the mm. ratings are much higher. So individual trust in politics is not that bad. My slightly kind of geeky point would be, I think, one of the main, well, not really main, but certainly a factor in the kind of disenchantment of people in Britain with politics is the way the voting system works. Because with first past the post, whether or not you get Conservative Labour or other government is bound up with the votes of maybe 20, 30, 40,000 people in a handful of marginal seats. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, I live in Harriet uh, Harman's um, area where every year she gets a kind of Stalinist kind of 70 or 80% vote, which is perfectly fine. You know, it's a very strong Labour area. But anyone who's not a Labour supporter knows that whoever they vote for there will not make a single bit of difference. Yeah. Why which I think is why lots of people don't bother doing it. And if you had a proportional representation system, I mean, those are not ideal, there's problems with them too, but I think they're much better, because you know that your vote's going to make some difference. It's yeah. going to be added to the tally. And again, there's good things and bad things. So, you know, I think one of the reasons there's been disenchantment and almost a move to the extreme is that people see that their vote is not registering. So, for example, in the 2015 election, when kind of pre-Brexit mania was at its point, UKIP got almost 4 million votes, um, uh, which is a massive amount, and they got one MP. If it had been a proportional representation system, they've got about 50 or 60. Mm. And that's an awful lot of people who are completely disenfranchised. And people might say, well, we wouldn't want 60 UKIP MPs in Congress. But that is democracy. But that's it. That's yeah. And it would have potentially allowed people to have talked about and defused this issue without it going to a much, much worse democratic option, which is this binary choice of an inner referendum, which is just massively oversimplified and doesn't really solve anything. So I, um, I'm interested in how people who have different careers or ways of life deal with the stress of that. It sounds like your working life, well, you define it for me. Is your working life stressful? You, you said Brexit's pretty stressful. It, it can be. I mean, being a journalist necessarily brings some stresses. You're sometimes talking to people in moments of extreme excitement, distress, etc., etc. Doing non-politics journalism can be stressful in certain ways. You can be amid protests or riots or talking to people who are extremely upset, lost someone or something like that. That can be difficult. Um, my experience of political journalism is not typical in that I joined the Guardian political team, having worked in other parts of the Guardian, about a week after the Brexit referendum took place. So it's been chaos ever since. Mm. Um, one of the things that helps is that the Guardian is, compared to most people, is quite a family-friendly place to work. The Guardian political team, you know, we're not based in the Guardian headquarters, we're in Westminster. And so we're on this long corridor of political journalists, and we've got an office of about five or six thousand people. How many are you? There's about six or seven in the Guardian team, and there's a couple of other people from different newspapers who work in, in our room too. And it's incredibly collegiate, incredibly supportive. Um, when I joined, 
The Guardian was the first newspaper that ever had the political editorship as a job share. Right. So it was two female colleagues of mine, both of whom had young kids, or still do have young kids, and decided to go for the job as a job share so they could still see their children and yet do a really interesting job. And that kind of you know, permeated into the atmosphere. So it's not anywhere near as kind of competitive as you know, something you, you know, people in very professional work very, very hard. It's very kind of supportive in the environment. That's great, because I have these I think I think it's maybe maybe it's just me, but maybe it's an indication of how people think because you you tend to work in journalism, and I, I imagine my mum was a journalist on Fleet Street in the 60s, and um, you, I imagine journalism is this extremely fast-paced, exciting, stressful, but basically beery thing where you just disappear and you don't see your family except on weekends, or even not on weekends, but it sounds like that's not the case. It's partly the internet has changed, because it used to be if you only had to file a story for the first edition of the paper at six o'clock or something, then particularly a lot of political journalists would in that era, start working about 11am, go out for a long, boozy lunch, you know, with a minister or an MP, and then type up their copy on their manual typewriter at, you know, 5pm, but then afterwards go out to, you know, because Parliament then used to often start at half two in the afternoon and go on to the middle of the or later. So it was this very, very unfamily-friendly place, and it was mainly Robin Cook when Blair came into power, who helped to kind of reshape, you know, the way it sat and stuff like that. So... You know, the way I work as political journalist would have been very, very different 20 years ago, and I wouldn't have wanted to have done that. But, you know, it's, it's not to say everything's changed. I mean, the Guardian is atypical. For the most part, most of the other political teams are staffed by incredibly nice people. Uh, but some of them do have more intense demands from the news desks. And very strong agendas as well. They do. I mean, it varies between the papers. It varies between the papers. The Guardian is a place where if the news editor rings you up and, say, and says, is this the line, you can tell them, well, no, I don't think it is, and they will listen to you, whereas others are much more directed by what the news editors say. But that's I think just I, a different style. I think I read a survey that said that the British public most trusted The Guardian uh, yesterday. Actually. Yeah, well, exactly, that's it. Though, if you look at the wider studies about who gets trusted, journalists are usually just above estate agents, right down on the bottom of the thing, but that's you know, just a wide risk. Um, so you also have quite a strong social media presence. Um, so I have a less strong social media presence. So I sort of built Volpine, my old company off that, and I'm hoping to build my new company from off that to an extent. But I have this real sort of... I, in, I've gone through this before in other podcasts, but basically my early history with Twitter, particularly because that was my favourite media. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's any more. I think it's gone to Instagram. It's entirely different, but... But, but Twitter, I met so many people who, who, who I'm now close to through Twitter, very interesting people, people who, who've uh, helped my career or just stimulated me, whatever. And I've noticed this it shift and then um, the, the trolling has become more intense. And I think maybe because of Brexit, Brexit politics, etc., everything seems to be much more intensified. And what I've started doing, which is you know, becoming more commonplace, is I, I block a lot more and I block apparently that helps the algorithms to get rid of the people you really don't want to oh, see okay. because That's it's got idea. to the point where I, I used to think no I want to be exposed to everything you know I can remember when one of the first beheadings in Iraq of a journalist was uh, was sort of filmed and put on the internet uh, and I had this big debate with um, my colleagues at the time it was like 
15 years ago. Um, and half of us said, we're going to watch it. And half of us said, no way. And I said, I've got to, I'm going to watch it because my policy is expose yourself to everything and make a decision. One of the worst decisions I've ever made. I mean, I've never seen, I've seen some pretty grim things, but I've never seen anything as horrific, genuinely, absolutely shockingly horrific that stayed with me for months. You know, way you worse than I'd watch it as well. No. And I wish I hadn't. And I sort of slightly rethought my opinion about this absorb everything thing. Now it's the point where with Twitter, that was a hugely extreme example, but to an extent it's with Twitter now I'm like, you know what, my life is busy enough, I've got enough stress, I, I don't want to see some of this stuff. Not beheadings, but just anger, anger. I, I've, one of the things I've always had is that great faith in humanity. I think that most human, as you've been saying about MPs and journalists, you know, and, and, and it's really nice to hear you saying that in a very pointed way because it, it, it's, it seems like everyone's against each other. <laughs> and you're not saying that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I fundamentally believe that if you sit in a room of people from very different backgrounds in the UK, and they all have a pint, which is one of the reasons I do this thing, the pub in, in Fram and have these podcasts talking openly, is that you'd get on. You won't exactly. agree on everything, but nobody's going to hit you. Exactly. Each other. Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas on Twitter, it seems very much like everyone's about to kill each other. And that makes me feel really bad. In terms of social media, Twitter is the one I use most often. That's the journalist's one of choice because it's an information exchange and it's the best one. So I use it as a kind of news alert service. I follow a lot of politicians and a lot of other political journalists. I also have the cycling stuff too. Um, so I am in touch with people. A lot of people I've never met. We've talked an awful lot about cycling-related things. So if people don't know you're a bit of a cycling... I'm sure you'd be too modest about this. You're a bit of a cycling thought leader. You're, you're a, one of the better-known cycling journalists in the UK. Purely because of my own interest in it. About seven or eight years ago, when me and another colleague realised the Guardian had no coverage of everyday cycling, also had a sports cycling section, but there was nothing at all about everyday cycling, so we decided to set up this bike blog, and we persuaded the powers that be at the time it'd be a good thing, and they were going, really? Are you sure you can, like, you know, is there enough stuff to actually write about it? And it's gone really well. I have less to do with it now in politics, but there's other people who run it and commission lots of stuff, and I ended up through the things I learned writing for the bike blog, writing a book about everyday cycling and the benefits it can bring. And that's almost like a very positive thing about Twitter. Um, in the, I've forgotten the top. It's not Bike Nation. It is Bike Nation, how cycling can save hey. the world. <laughs> Good plug. But, I mean, it's very interesting from that point of view. The thing I always have to, or everyone should always run with Twitter, with it's not the real world. It is a, it's not even by any means the most popular form of social media. It attracts a particular audience, and within that audience... An opinionated audience. Well, and it's also within those, there's a minority of people who shout loudly and rudely, and they tend to dominate the discourse. And so, with the many benefits it brings, you know, talking about my political journalism, from information, you know, you get a certain amount of abuse. Interestingly, the thing I always find is... We've got a reasonably female-dominated office in the Guardian politics team, and my female colleagues tend to get a lot more abuse than I do. I think that's common on all social media. I don't think it's even conscious with some people. I think some Twitter types just, because it's generally men doing shouting, something within them triggers them. I, I think it's about power. I think a lot of the trolling and the unpleasantness on... I think a great deal of human politics is about yeah. power, particularly for men, and... And I think that trolling is about 
trying to grab something back that you don't have. Mm. That's why I've learned to pity trolls and people who said nasty, crazy things about me is maybe they think my... And, you know, this is another thing about farmers. On social media, it's very easy to think that my or other people's lives are perfect. I've got nice kids, you know, yes, exactly. I've got a nice company, and look at these nice pictures I'm taking on putting on Instagram. Because I'm not showing me wiping their bums, you know, or me having flu, or not being able to pay the bills. Or, or lying in bed at night or thinking, what's the point of it all? Imagine me Instagramming does. my gas bill, you know, and it's like, oh, I'm not sure I might have to wait till next week. You know, it's like, people don't want to hear that. And as a human, I don't want people to know my problems either. So, but of course, what happens is, especially because as an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs have been mythologized and generally, you know, as these amazing people who do amazing things have really cool lives and fly around the world in, in jets, you know, hanging out with President Obama. Um, and, it, you know, the, the reality is just smashing your head against the keyboard, wondering what's going to go wrong next to exactly. one o'clock in the morning, earth, yes. to an extent, which I've tried to mitigate now. But, but, but what happens is I think that lonely, scared, sad, whatever, people was lacking something in their lives, find someone or something which they disagree with or they're jealous of or angry with, and they what you tend to get, and you might have seen as you almost on the fringes, you actually get stalkers, social media stalkers, who just hate everything that you do. That's when it gets scary. Yeah, I've I had a couple of those. Go, and you're like, grim. you know, and those people have got blocked and they seem to give up but you know um, or you just learn to ignore them and decide that it's okay but at the time I've talked about this with other people so it's leading to a question is is that you must have those people I've seen a lot of the stuff you get it's pretty full on does that affect you? I try not to let it affect me I try to you know I don't always manage to but I try to initially interact in a kind of human way is if I'm sitting opposite someone. If someone starts off with abuse or insults, then I just don't bother. I don't tend to block, I just tend to mute on Twitter, which probably doesn't do any good. It just gives me a slight satisfaction that they might be shouting back at me for <laughs> having no idea. Also, I block, can't see them. Blocking sometimes feeds the beast. They screen grab it and exactly. go, oh look, he's blocked me. He exactly. doesn't want to hear my opinion. Exactly. That's so in terms of the specific stalkers, I've had one slight eccentric guy who seemed convinced that my cycling coverage was invalid because I was being paid by the motor industry um, I've never received any checks right. if they want to send me anything that's fine you know. I'll, uh, but that was rare, so for the most part I think the politics stuff that we get you know, the, the kind of angry stuff on Twitter is less the kind of specific trolls, I think it's people who are on a particular point of politics who are really really passionate about it so and do you think that passion boils over? I think in some cases it does. Some cases it becomes irrational and abusive. Um, you know, we get some people who are Labour Party supporters who are completely insistent that the Guardian's coverage of Labour, and particularly Jeremy Corbyn, is institutionally unfair and hmm. deliberately so. And if people say that to me, I tend to reply saying, you know, if you think we've got something wrong, here's a link to our reader's editor's office. This is what, you know, the Guardian's thing where, you know, corrections can be done. It's a completely independent thing. So if you have got anything wrong, then, you know, corrections are made. And I, once I send them to them, I very, very rarely hear back, because they haven't got a specific thing. It's this generalised sense of you're not being fair, and they find it quite hard to point to specific instances. But then, by the same token, if I write stuff about people, 
you know, then I'll get quite a lot of abuse from certain people on the kind Don't of give them the time right. of day. Don't give them the oxygen of publicity or... Well, I think you've got to, because I think... No, but that's people, what people might oh. say, or... Well... Like, like when someone's on Newsnight, or... I sometimes get that, and with those I just say, well, they're still polling up to 7 or 8%, you know, they're a mainstream party, you cannot pretend they're not there. But I also get some abuse from people on the further right, in particular UKIP earlier this year took on three members who were these kind of right-leaning, kind of libertarian, free speech advocates, YouTube personalities, mm. all of whom have got quite a big following on social media. And if any of them says something rude about you, you know, when I first wrote an article about you know, about a week of people saying rude things. I mean, if it's work, I try not to let it bother me. If I go on holiday, I delete Twitter from my phone and don't think about you it. literally delete the app. I de- delete the app. Which actually, in another geek way, is quite good because it uses up a vast amount of memory space too. Because <laughs> it, it caches it. Right. So if your phone's going slow, sometimes delete Twitter every now and then. And I, I did that. When, when Volpine went pop and I had a breakdown, I, 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 what was good, you're forced to to stop and you're forced to do a lot of things and 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 so I, I would just listen to, to people I trusted close to me, I would just listen to their advice and just do it because I didn't even necessarily know it was good advice, I, I, I didn't feel like I had the ability to make those choices at the time so people would say, right Nick, just get off social media just just get rid of it all get that, because yeah. what you want to do at that time is concentrate on what's in front of your face, exactly um, my family, my health um, sleeping um the sunshine, you know, just, just simplify everything. That that was a very big way that I recovered. And, and Twitter is very much not that. Um, and so I just deleted the app. Um, I Twitter is a place for robust people, I think, sometimes. Yeah, and, and I was robust, robust and at the time I was not. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I'm slightly less robust than I used to be. Yeah. But, um, but I said, this is the great, the, the important thing I'm trying to do at the moment is not to be a changed person in a negative way from that experience, for, for it to take the positives, you know, definitely in terms of the positives of, um, I did an interview earlier this week and I was talking about the positive saying, you know, my family life is much, much better. My health is much better. You know, I've lost weight because I'm drinking less, not comfort eating and all this kind of yeah. stuff. It's just positives. But I think the negative is I'm a much more cautious person. I've always been quite, um, always feel the fear and do it anyway and now I'm definitely more cautious in, in lots of ways because you know whatever I try and do and however I try and frame it in my mind getting shouted at unfairly in my opinion is you know uh, I think that you know if a company goes pop and it loses people's investment then it's very fair to say you know you're a bad boss or you should have done what a better hell? job yeah and that's completely irrelevant but to say Sort of really nasty things that are just made up to sort of poke the poke the sad person, as I like to think of it, without me trying to be too sort of um, boohoo poor me, because lots of people suffered, which makes me feel fucking awful, you okay. know. But but anyway, I think that I I don't want to run scared from that, which is one of the reasons I went back to Twitter. I thought, you know what, I liked Twitter before, and I liked talking to people, and most people on Twitter are really nice and interesting, and stimulating. But um, I'm still trying to find my mojo, really. Um, and what I did, because I wasn't getting that mojo, was I actually converted my um, my personal account into Fram's account. Um, just because I didn't feel like I wanted to keep talking about what I'd had for dinner or the fact exactly. that my kids were nice. <laughs> you know, exactly. I just thought that was dull. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's... There are a lot of 
nice, interesting people out there. And that's one of the things which is really interesting as a journalist because, you know, when I started as a journalist about 20 years ago, the only interaction you get from readers, I mean, I was working for a news agency anyway, which is different because you're kind of, you know, your stuff appears in the papers, you then get the uh, interaction bit. All you get would be maybe a letter or an email a day or so later. And a lot of journalists were, didn't like this whole immediate interaction of first reader comments on the articles mm. and then social media. But, you know, despite the negative things, I think it's a really, really good thing because the first thing you find out when someone is, you know, the first time the comments are opened up underneath the story you've written is that there's always someone out there who knows the subject better than you. And you can't fudge anything because people say, well, hang on, you know, how about this? And it keeps you honest. Um, and it can be this incredibly useful thing, particularly, you know, with the Guardian's bike blog, which tended to attract reasonably like-minded people. A lot of the comments underneath the articles were really completely fascinating, as fascinating as the articles. Um, and then on social media, I will sometimes, you know, always preface it with a kind of geek warning, ask very technical bike questions, saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And there's always people, even some people I didn't even know followed my tweets, so well, actually, you know, I happen to work for such and such a bike widget company, and I can tell you this, and it's brilliant. Isn't it amazing that Peter's managed to stay so fair? I'm not sure I could do that, but it's a real sign of what a high-quality journalist and a trustworthy journalist he is. Um, if you're a new listener, you uh, may not know that we never edit. Uh, that's why you get the sort of dead ends and bits and bobs. I think that's important because normal chatter, normal conversation is like that, uh, because I think it's a more honest way of doing podcasts. So what you hear is what you get. So I think it's a fairly good podcast anyway, but if you don't think so, please let us know. Um, it's always good to have feedback. Thanks. So as a tool of communication, it's completely amazing. It's interesting you were talking about comments because, you know, there is this classic thing that people say, never read the comments. Yes. And I used to reply to all the comments on, you know, uh, people said, oh, that's overpriced on a jacket or whatever it might be. And then, um, of course, you, you did an article. It's quite, it quite funny because the, there were two events in the first year of Volpine which fundamentally changed the company. Yes. One of them was that I did create an event called Volpine Cycling Fake, which, oh, yes. which blew up oh, and yeah. gave, you know, created such goodwill and, you know, suddenly people knew about us and that was fantastic. It was unbelievably hard work. That's why, you know, they stopped because it was just killing me. But... Um, Organising events is incredibly inaccurate. Well, it's terrifying as well because it's like putting on on a big house party when you've just moved to the area. You don't know if anyone's going to turn up, or if everyone's going to turn up. Yeah, well, luckily everyone turned up, and it was absolutely jam packed, and it was one of the best days of my life, and probably the best day in Volpine ever. But because I'd invested so much personally into that, you know, it was honestly it was absolutely terrifying. But it just went so well, and that's that's the addiction of. On to being an entrepreneur is to make something happen and yes. putting your ass on the line and it actually working. This is an incredible feeling. Yeah, I had a fever for a week after that because I was so exhausted. <laughs> but that's, that's really not a good thing. The other one you were responsible for, and it wasn't designed in any way. And I'll come on to that because it's quite funny. Is is that um, you you got hold of a Volpine jacket, the first Volpine jacket, and you reviewed it, and it, the article went on September 2012. And I have spoken to you about this in the past, but. It basically, it, my 
my friend James, who was a model for Volpine Pinephobia, and said, Nick, you need to look at the Guardian website right now. And I looked at the homepage, and, and, and I... Um, I literally threw my hands in the air and, and screamed because we were the first image on the top of the homepage. And for a tiny business at that point, it was an absolutely extraordinary thing. And like the website broke, you know, it's the classic that we couldn't take the traffic. And I just thought, that's one of those moments that I've been chasing. Now, you didn't design it that way. And I'm interested because as a journalist, you can't think that way because you don't want to start doing people favours. But you, you did this article called Levi's versus Volpine and you basically reviewed Levi's and you weren't very nice. But you weren't, you didn't rate their stuff and you did rate Volpines, to be fair. And, but it, what was I'm getting to was what's so funny are the comments below it. Because people were saying that you'd been paid off by us, me, to write this article. Because... They were just like, this is free, you know, free advertising. Of course, it, it was fantastic for us, but, but of course, I felt we deserved it. But people just didn't have that trust. They, it, it, well, some people didn't have that trust. They thought, well, this is a load of bollocks. This is an advertorial, you know. I mean, some readers never understand this kind of review process, right. where you get sent something, you try it out, and then you send it back. Sometimes you're nice about it, sometimes not. But some clothing companies have been really quite pissy with me when I've not been very nice about their stuff. There's one in particular who's saying, well, you know, I'm not sure what I'm saying that stuff, you're going to be rude about it. So, well, that's the point. But um, I, can, I can, yeah, it's a slightly high concept idea that Levi's had used to launch their commuter range. And then someone told me about your range. And I thought it'd be interesting to compare stuff made by a company whose entire mission was cycling ready to close, you know, which was every day. To buy into a, a burgeoning market. And then Levi's, who yeah. are a massive corporation, and just to see, look, does, is their heart in it? And lots of people really like the Levi's commuter range, and they still make it, and it still does very well. I didn't particularly, and who knows, maybe over various iterations they've got better. Hmm. Um, you should do a follow-up. I have no skin to get. <laughs> well, I say that, but I do now because I make a cycling jacket. But, exactly, um, yeah, I should do that. But, um, but, but the other thing, just to quickly mention, is that the fact it was placed high up on the uh, homepage, that's something obviously the writer has nothing to do with. It's the various homepage editors who decide on that depending on yeah. the mix of stories and the traffic of that day. So that was entirely arbitrary. Of course. Which meant if I was being paid, I couldn't have really provide much for service. <laughs> well, you know, journalists are very careful about what they do as well and um, you know what they accept and they you know it, and this is the difference between what I call journalists with a capital J you know some some journalists I don't think are journalists I think they're writers or they're copywriters or, or, or whatever we have a thing and there's nothing wrong with that and essentially that's what I do you know in my marketing I, I'm, I'm, I'm creating copy yeah, to talk about products and hopefully in, in an honest and interesting and, and humane way but I'm not being completely even-minded, I'm saying my jacket's great. So I'm not a journalist. I wouldn't dare to call myself a journalist. Um, whereas I do, I do think because what's really, really coming out about talking to you, and I, you know, I know you fairly well, but but not spent that much time with you, is that it is this constant theme of fair-mindedness and evenness, which I think is so important in a journalist, and I think is a characteristic of hopefully Guardian journalists, not columnist, but columnist is different. Is is just always trying to look at it from all sides and, and take that fairest view. Do you think that's... Well, one of the interesting things which has changed in the social media world is that I'm a reporter rather than a columnist. And certainly 20 years ago, the idea of a reporter expressing any personal opinions would just be crazy because yeah. you just reported the news. You know, in an ideal world, no one would know anything about you. You were just 
this producer of music. I'm in the social media world. This is balancing it. So I do express opinions on cycling. You know, I've written a whole book, which is a kind of manifesto of what I think this government should do. And I think it's, it's, it's tricky, but I think it's permissible just as long as in your actual reporting you are fair mm. uh, about it. And obviously my views will change you know, will influence what I write about. So I'd be interested in writing a cycling news story because it's something that you know, I've got interest in and experience of. But I would then hope to quote everyone in a, in a kind of fair-minded way. But, you know, it's, 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 an, it's, it's, it's a real change. It's something that in the last 10 years, all journalists have had to face up to. You know, you have this public-facing brand. And some political journalists are very, very opinionated, some less so. I try to not ever express opinions um, about particular MPs because you know you might have to then you know meet them. Um, I will make observations um, about them. Um, I have this um, kind of personal running joke about Greg Clark as the Secretary of State for Business, and it's like the safest pair of hands in the cabinet. Whenever there's an interview to be done about something really complicated but boring, he's a man who's like Santana because he's very bright but he's incredibly cautious. And the thing that I most love is that once he's been interviewed on ITV, and he's been so cautious that the interview was actually Piers Morgan, asked him to confirm his own name, and he uh, initially wouldn't. <laughs> so I always think of his great love, the man who briefly refused to confirm his own name. And in politics, that's, you, know, you always have to have people like that. So I think it's okay to express views like that and find that amusing. If I was to say, I think he's an idiot, which for the record, I don't, then you know, that's not really fair. Do you, here's a big one. Do you think that social media, and I guess specifically Twitter, is uh, is adversely affecting the world? I fear social media is adversely affecting the mental health of young people. I'm not an expert on this. You've got kids, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a boy who's eight. Right. So he's not at that stage yet. Do you worry about that? Because he's coming I do. up for that. I do, I do. I mean... I can remember growing up, and when you're a teenager, pressures feel very intense. Social pressures and fitting in or approving and being part of the gang. Yeah. No. But if you were at home and there was, you know, a great party or gathering going on three streets down and you didn't know about it, you might never know, and that's mm. fine, it doesn't worry you. But if you see someone posting photos of it on Instagram or whatever young people use these days, which I don't really know much about, then I can imagine the exclusionary pressure would be very intense. And just, yeah. I worry about the kind of shaming that happens too. If someone does something stupid, then it might have been just only your mates who knew about it, but then suddenly there might be like a WhatsApp group going mm. on. And that's, that's quite terrifying. It's, um, it's interesting because I see my, my, so my son's five and he started school and you can see peer pressure starting to yeah. exist. And he's pretty bright, but he's he's... He's more of a follower. He really looks up. You can see his eyes wide open when he's with older boys. He really looks up to them. Uh, and I don't know what I was like at that age, but I've, I know that at school I was very much... I would never take anything at face value. I was almost annoying to the... <laughs> sure, I'm annoying now, but I was annoying then because I would just refuse to go with the peer pressure or go yeah. with the status quo. I would say, no, it's bad. We're not going to do that. That's dangerous. And so that meant that um, I wasn't particularly popular. But I was myself, and that's why I was, it was important to me. With my son, I worry about him. He, he's quite laddish, and him getting sort of absorbed into doing bad things. And I've seen boys doing bad things, but what really worries me, 
So social media, I think we're going to work out. I think it's going to get better. Mm. And I think it's so it's new. And we're get, getting to a po- point, a peak, where we will, we will find solutions. So and I think people will just be more wary of it, particularly wary with their kids, because the generation who are teenagers now are the first ones with their faces. Yeah. But what I do worry about is porn. Because porn, for me, when I was growing up, was finding a uh, jazz mag. Mm. In a, in a ditch because a truck driver throwing it out and we'd be 13 year old and go oh that's exciting um, but but now you, you just google something and you have instant access to the, the scariest stuff and particularly the non-scary stuff the sort of general general porn out there is very very male focused it's aggressive it's unpleasant it's nothing romantic about it and and what I worry about because I'm I'd like to think that I am a I don't know. How would you define it? A non-alpha male, or, or a just nice, a nice bloke. I don't yeah. want to be, you know, a dominant. A, yeah, a, an old-school man. And I don't want my son to be. It's very important for my son to be caring and affectionate and considerate and empathic. And I think that um, I think that porn is a very strong emotion for any teenager but as a boy I know how strong it was as a pull and I remember that very clearly I'd be terrified about like sex was everything to me when I was a teenager and I worry when he gets to that age if he starts accessing porn porn is saying you're in charge you take what you want and I don't want that so I'm working out ways to get around it I think you know sexuality is such an incredibly powerful force particularly when you're young and in some ways, I think it's better now. Obviously, in you know, for example, um, you know, if I'd been in the kind of reasonably middle-class and tolerant comprehensive that I went to, if I'd grown up to be gay, that would have been possibly difficult. Yeah. Because homophobic abuse was, you know, minute by minute, it was just what you did, what you said. And there were, you know, kids never knew who you probably were, but they hid it to their great distress. Or you know, if they indicated to anything, then you know, that's extraordinarily hard. And I think with the whole thing, it's the world is kind of more open in some ways, and information is there. Yeah. And you have people have instant access to it, and that brings good things. So, for example, it's harder for desperate to be able to get away with stuff. I mean, they still do that. Mm. You know, to, to veer completely off the point. Um, China is currently attaining up to a million of its kind of Muslim Uyghur population and you know that can happen but it only happens because China's got this incredibly complicated you know kind of control system involving into it too but for most other countries things are more open and that brings good things and also really really bad things so I I don't know how you, you kind of Work that out. I, I think it's just the classic. You sit them down and you make them understand. I mean, my mum yeah. was very. It's interesting that the, my mum was very ahead of her time in terms of sex, and she sat down with me when I was very small and explained how everything works. And then as I got older, you know, I I, I am a. I was brought up by my mum, and my dad wasn't really around, and so I, I'm a. If I, a, a, a whatever we define it as a a new man, as it used to be called, yes, indeed. Yeah, um, because I was brought up by a woman who wanted to make sure that I was respectful to women yeah. and understood. But I can remember being in school and we were talking about um, Emmeline Pankhurst and history of suffrage in the UK and, and the teacher said, um, who here thinks sexism is okay? 
and all the boys except me put their hands up. And they all looked at each other and went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was outed because of that. Outed as a feminist. Yeah. Well, outed as a as not one of the lads, yeah. as a soft and basically gay. I and mean, like you're saying about, you know, when we were growing up, you know, the insult was, you, oh, you're a puff. Yes. Oh, you must be a puff because you're with the girls. Oh, which is called the irony of, of course. And um, I actually grew up expecting to be gay simply because everyone told me I'd be gay because I yes. was nice yeah. which is a terrible thing because boys should be nice but they're gay or straight you know it's not like a characteristic sexual characteristic but it is interesting you have that difference now you know sexual roles are much much less set so in some ways things are much better I think it's you know particularly I mean hopefully in the aftermath of, you know the whole kind of Me Too movement too there is this sense that men cannot do things that they used to be able to do, you know, even under the badge of banter or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and we're currently still at the kind of, you know, shocked stage, but hopefully within 10 years it will have percolated into culture. And also it just becomes this kind of gradual thing, you know, if you work alongside lots of women, you know, particularly one of your bosses, it just becomes normal. So, which is like immigration and working alongside black and Asian people. It's, exactly. You know, exactly. You, that's you realise that they're the same as you, and you've got the same problems and things, same things you enjoy, and they're not going to do you any harm. Exactly. That's it. And I'm, you know, from some points of view, quite positive about that because, for all that we kind of go in curves and up and down, there is this gradual movement towards more kind of tolerance, and it's been incredibly quick, even in the time that I can you know, remember taking interest in these things, even when I was at university kind of homophobic incidents were completely routine. Yeah. And now at university you couldn't really get away with that stuff. No. Which is completely brilliant. I, I, but on that, I do feel like you've had this separation. And Brexit is the obvious sort of thing that everyone uses to define it, and maybe that's true, is you have a section of people who feel very disenfranchised with power, and maybe that's why they voted for Brexit, and with, you know, blaming, I think, people from other countries and immigration and that's because you know they they're getting stiffed um and then i do also think you have bubbles you know i used to live in london and in london you know it's a i live in bath now and bath is a very nice very safe lovely place it's very very white and it it really still freaks me out it's the only thing i find strange about bath or i haven't quite got used to and i come to london and at first, I, I really, I really glad to be out of London, and it was great relief, you know, it's so intense. But now I really enjoy coming to London because I'm like, oh, it's so different, and there's so many different people here, and it's fantastic. And and, and just seeing lots of people from different racial backgrounds, I actually am very comfortable with, and I, I miss. But that's I am from, I am coming from, and have always been in that bubble, whereas. There are people in other parts of the country, and it's not because clearly you have a problem with immigration, race, and race. I think you must be racist in some way, and it is said that some everyone we're all racist in some way. And I don't know if that's true, but 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 clearly they're not accessing people of different cultures and races, and that's probably why they're so anti-immigration because they're scared. They they really do think, and they're being told those people are taking something from. Them. There was a really interesting study out a couple of weeks back, which was done on like surveys over, you know, mass surveys over a lot of years, pinpointing this whole thing, which is very closely tied to Brexit, between people's views on multiculturalism and 
how optimistic they were and stuff like that. And, you know, you could argue that maybe Bath, we live now, is probably in a different type of bubble, but more similar to London than some other places, because it found this real split between kind of confident, affluent, pro-multicultural urban areas, and then ones which disproportionately tended to be poorer, less multicultural uh, places, which are either smaller towns or outskirts of cities and stuff like that. And it's this real split. And and it's not to blame people on either side and say one's better and one's not. It's just this complete disconnect between yeah. the two. And this is something which is obviously one of the great triggers for Brexit. One of the tragedies, seemingly, of Brexit is it doesn't seem likely that anything's going to change. Until we can... The problem with Brexit is we seem to be dividing further and further away from each other, or either pro or against. And the problem is, one of, unfortunately, one of the human attributes most humans have is we hate admitting we're wrong, or it seems increasingly listening to other people and saying, you know what, I've had a think, and I'm going to change my mind. We're not allowed to change our mind anymore. MPs, if they change their mind, get berated for it, which I think is a terrible thing. I think you, how can you have the same opinion and, and, and just hold on to it? Um, and so for Brexit to change, people have, for Brexit to not happen, which is what I want um, for various reasons, people have to go, you know what, um, I, think, I think I've changed my mind. Now, of course, of course the, the, the privacy of a polling box gives you that chance. You don't have to tell people you change your mind. You can just make a decision. But if that doesn't happen, instead what happens is people will generally defend their position on social media. I voted for Brexit and I'm sticking to it because that's what democracy was. As long as we're all shouting at each other, nothing's going to change. But the interesting thing is though, that the polling, such as it is, seems to show that if there was another vote, then it's quite likely that Leave would win again. And it's interesting talking that some politicians on the Remain side are thinking about this because there's obviously a lot of people campaigning for this so-called people's vote. But there's some MPs are also thinking, well, hang on, if we did get a people's vote, how would we persuade people? What's the positive message that we've got? And that positive message, you know, which, which is obviously the strong belief of some of these MPs, hasn't really been put out there. So I'm not convinced how much it would actually change. It's, it's you know, there's, there's two separate arguments to it. And, and so I don't necessarily see reverse happening. It seems... So I could talk like for ages. Um, but running out of time. So there's a couple of subjects I'm interested in. One is about leadership, which I think is about opinions about, you know, May and Corbyn and all this stuff. But what I'd like to to go to is something slightly different, which is climate change. And it's related to what we were just talking about. Is so to one of my best friends is a is a director. Uh, it's basically um, a major climate change charity, and he's a climate change scientist. You know, he sees climate change and he's fucking terrified now you know because he gets to see the data and he's he's scaring the shit out because you know you know i have i've really focused my mind over the last year having got to know him listen back about climate change because it was always in there i mean it was there when i was growing up a kid people think it's new it's not new at all it was in fact you look at films and documentaries of the 70s and the 60s and it's there you know it wasn't called climate change then but 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 it's it's you know it's 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 really coming to a head but the problem is it's not coming to a head fast enough because humans are very 
um, reactive. And it's, when it's something's in front of your face, you do something about it. If a child dies in a terrible way because they were abused, they will change the law to make sure that doesn't happen again because it's horrific. It's sort of all over the media, rightly so. But, but climate change is slow and inexorable, and it's not that different from what it is right exactly, now. Yeah. It's very gradual, and that's not what the human brain is built for. So, so I'm really interested as a marketing person, I, what I want to be is the nice, you know, good marketing person, not the bad one, is how could I or other people help change how we look at climate change and to push really significant changes? Because, and I think it's, I've talked to people about this, it's about presenting something simple and positive. Because we are frightened, especially when we're being bombarded by negativity at the moment, when Brexit is completely washing everything out else out, out of the bathwater is is um terrible analogy but uh, is uh, how do we get climate change back on i mean at the moment we've got a new brazilian leader going backwards yeah. china going backwards uk not really doing anything particularly um us going backwards and it and almost the us has said you know what it's so bad let's just not even bother which is unbelievable so I just wonder, I don't know where this is going, but I just wonder whether there needs to be some sort of, I don't know, I don't want to ask, how do we concentrate on the thing that really matters? I think there's various things, one of which is just to constantly remind politicians about this. I mean, to go back to the... Do you mean as a, as a population to well, remind them more? Personally, firstly, as an individual. So, for example, whenever you speak to councillors about cycle lanes, they will say, well, we hear a lot from car drivers. Cyclists never seem to kind of say that much. So a lot of it is just the really boring stuff of emailing saying, here I am, you know, and MPs will respond to consistent questions from the people they represent. Um, I think it might take sustained pressure from below to focus politicians' attention. Um, a couple of days ago, outside Parliament, there was first demonstration by this new climate group called Extinction Rebellion, right. who are an overtly um, uh, direct action group. Mm. Um, and they announced their presence about a week ago by occupying the offices of Greenpeace, because mm. they said Greenpeace are just kind of too corporate and not really into radical Seems stuff. like potentially not quite the target you'd be after. But that was just like a kind of mini PR thing, just to get people's sure. notice. Okay. And there are people who, some of the people involved sprung out of the uh, Occupy movement, the Occupy London movement. Um, and they're basically saying it's such an important thing we, you know, we have to put ourselves online, be arrested, go to prison do whatever is necessary to, to do it so they did this um, initial protest where they expected a few dozen people to turn up but they had up to a thousand people in Parliament Square and they blocked the road outside Parliament Square for a few hours but then left just before the police were about to arrest them yeah. and they've got a big day of action coming up where they're supposedly going to seek direct action in all sorts of places and this is the sort of thing, I mean, it might completely disappear, but it's the sort of thing you could imagine completely spiralling. Because mm. the interesting thing about it was that it wasn't just young people, there were quite a few older people too. So I think it's people thinking, I, I think this has gone beyond the point. I've been fascinated by the news cycle over the decades. I, I think that if change is going to come, it's going to come from something really desperately awful happening, something very immediate, right in people's faces you know so i remember the storms of the late 80s the one where they oh, said yes. it wasn't going to be anything and then all the trees were blown down but I, i'm not sure that's enough the connection needs to be made the problem is what it so so for instance wildfires in california yes you know that that's not going to happen in the uk 
you know, it will be slow flooding of low-lying areas. Just like what, what is summer's the thing? Summer's normal, yes. Yeah, like maybe all the crops fail or something. So until that happens, which by that time it's probably too late. Exactly. You know, it's, what is that thing that grabs people by the throat and says, we can't ignore it anymore? It's happening, it's happened. You know, the slightly depressing thing is I don't think there is any one thing like that. We've had, you know, this very, very extreme weather for a few years and it's very obvious and governments are still not doing it. But I think it's this incremental thing. I think more and more people get it. And the various mm. IPCC reports are very good because they collate all the information. And now, you know, from the last one, there was this very simple message. We've got just over a decade to save the world. But, but that's, that's the Guardian will focus on that. The Daily Mail uh, and the Express won't. They're, they're, they're picking up on it. I mean, really? for example, you know, the Daily Mail's been very much at the forefront of the campaign against plastics, you know, which is stuff people can understand. It's from what David has in the programmes and stuff like that. But it's gradually, you know, in my view, I don't know if it's going to be too late. It might be too late, but I think people are starting to realise. And I think, you know, it, I'm not sure it's going to take this one devastating weather event because those can be written off as freaks. Sure. That's almost easier. Yeah. I think it's this incremental thing where people will think, you know, we have to act. Or, or, or it's just picking people in the pocket. The other way is not to, I don't, I think, if you say, you will save loads of money if you put solar panels on your house and start generating your own electricity. You will save even more money by getting electric car, even though cars aren't really the solution. And you have exactly cyclists, we, <laughs> you know, <laughs> everyone should be cycling. So there's all kinds of positive things you can do. Let's encourage people to change their behaviours. They should just, we, we've got plastic cutlery in front of us right now, just ban it. All these things just you, they, they, it takes the government action. The yeah. political will mm. and the media reaction, because the media reaction affects the public reaction. That's what it's all about. And right now, if you whack up the fuel prices, people will go crazy. You know, that doesn't happen with smoking anymore. What I'm really interested in is, for instance, there are two major changes in culture over the last few decades, and that is drink driving yes. and smoking. Like, I find it so bizarre seeing people smoke. And um, how do you do that with climate change? And I think that has to come from a governmental level. They just say, you know what, we're just going to do the right thing. But will they? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I would love to think so. I would love to think so. You know, people in government get it as all these things. You know, if we didn't have Brexit to endlessly focus on in Britain, you know, the, the, the budget had barely anything on environmental issues in there. Yeah. If there's one kind of positive thing, it seems like every time the Green Party come up with an idea, it gets assimilated by one of the major parties, like a couple of years later. So, for example, uh, the Greens came up with the idea of the, uh, the four-day working week, which everyone said, no, that's completely crazy. And now Labour are thinking about adopting it. A few years before that, they were talking about the idea of the of the um, uh, kind of living income, the national income. Mm -hmm. Again, everyone said that's completely crazy, but now that's been talked about in a very serious way. And the Greens have been pushing for years this idea of a massive green investment programme. So basically giving everyone a huge, you know, enough money to be able to insulate their house, and, which would create lots of jobs and save vast amounts of energy and money in the long term. And now, you know, other parties have started to look at it. So who knows? Um, I really, so I'm going to stop there, but I really enjoyed your your even-mindedness and your optimism as well. I think it's really, really important. And uh, I didn't necessarily expect it because there's a hell of a lot to be pessimistic about and you're sort of almost drowning in it. I That's what I expected. I warn you, all my predictions are always wrong. Well, no, I, I think just the attitude, uh, you know, of listening to other people, the other views, and, and not letting these things affect you and not becoming angry or hopefully embittered by any of the, the I think, the terrible stuff that gets thrown at you. 
you know, you're obviously able to deal with that much better than I can, and I just think that's fantastic. So, um, uh, wish I could do that. <laughs> you can. Well, it's been a complete uh, pleasure. Um, thanks very much, Peter. Same to you. Uh, bye, listeners. I never know how to sign off. It's terrible. What more can I say? Uh, I think that was very, very interesting. Hopefully interesting for non-Brits uh, as well. What on earth is going on in Britain at the moment? Maybe it's not that bad. Well, certainly media is telling us that bad, but not Peter Walker, Guardian Media. Uh, he seems to be very, very fair. Um, and I think that that's really, really important. That is how we are going to get through this. If you would like to comment, please, please do. If you'd like to rate, please, please do. That always helps. Um, and if you would like to look at the lovely, lovely men's jackets that will last a very long time and be very useful for lots of stuff, then it's fromjacket.com. Um, some of that money goes to Mind, and we support Mind, so that's a nice thing that we do. Otherwise, don't worry about being imperfect. Look for help if you need it. Have a good old chat, um, get some exercise, and look after yourself. Um, I will see you next time for Henry Jeffries. Take care. Bye.